Hello and welcome to Bite-Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. Today, we're going to be talking about something that pops up all the time in military history, and that is guerrilla warfare, i.e. what is it, uh, how did it happen, when was it used, and I'm going to be giving a few examples from history. Thankfully, not all from the same time period, so you can kind of see how this method of warfare popped up and and maybe kind of how it evolved. So let's get started. All right, let's talk about guerrilla warfare. First of all, uh, where does this word come from? The word guerrilla or guerrilla uh, comes from Spanish and it means little war. So in Spanish, a lot of times when you take a word and you make it diminutive, you give it a diminutive form, meaning like you make it smaller, like you'll get what this means in a second, you'll add uh, like an I and two L's, um, so or something of that nature. So guerra, the Spanish word for war, becomes guerrilla, which is little war. Uh, it's obviously related to like neighboring languages, like war in French is la guerre. Um, so I just thought that was interesting. It comes from the early 19th century, at a time when the armies of Napoleon were invading Spain and Portugal. This time uh, is called the Peninsular War, and there was a large number of Spanish peasants and people like that that basically started fighting the French in a less organized, more secretive way. So that's where we get the word guerrilla. Guerrilla warfare um, is a style of warfare where a small mobile force fights a larger, slower force. The larger force may have uh, better equipment, higher numbers, uh, and or more uh, resources. The smaller force uses things like ambushes, hit-and-run attacks, supply raids, and infiltration to confuse, demoralize, weaken, and scatter the larger force. Um, In this way, the smaller force is using kind of irregular tactics and fighting strategies to compensate for their lack of numbers or resources or or anything like that. It's kind of this, uh, you know, kind of don't fight hard, fight smart kind of thing. Uh, In many conflicts throughout history, guerrilla forces have had the support of the local population. People sympathetic to the guerrillas would provide them with information, food, and weapons. Guerrillas often have to operate in territory completely controlled by their enemy. And this is key because oftentimes they can't rely on things like regular supply. Guerrilla warfare relies heavily on knowledge of the local terrain, mobility of all forces. Mobility is absolutely crucial to guerrilla warfare. So you have to be faster uh, than your enemy, uh, either by carrying less equipment and knowing the terrain better, so kind of like a light infantry approach, or having horses or, or, or something like that. Um, and if you're not faster, you can still wage guerrilla warfare if you're able to easily and completely melt into local terrain, things like woods and swamps and mountains. And this is made so much easier if you have intimate knowledge of that local terrain. Guerrilla fighters uh, also have to have the ability to fight with limited supplies. Uh, And and this is uh, also kind of a trademark of guerrilla warfare is is this 
aspect of your resources where you can't count on you know regular supply so you have to fight with whatever you can take from the enemy so that's interesting as well i mean moving along in certain times and places throughout history uh guerrilla warfares were called partisans and i'm not really going to use that word for this episode it's not that it's, it's it's a bad word or anything it's just generally speaking in my opinion partisan has more of a kind of nationalist uh 20th century connotation Whereas I feel guerrilla and guerrilla warfare is more easily applicable to a variety of peoples and places uh, throughout time, throughout history. The first example I'd like to give of guerrilla warfare is that experience of Roman soldiers in Britain, which uh, eventually became the Roman province of Britannia. When the Romans initially left the Mediterranean to conquer lands to the north, places like uh, Germania, like Germany, uh, or Belgium, or or Gaul, or, or Britain, anything like that, they left the sun-drenched lands of the Mediterranean with its olive trees and uh, delicious wine made of grapes, and they headed into the northern lands, which were more damp, more cold. You had vast, dark forests with oak trees, uh, which a lot of them had never seen before, and the people drank beer instead of wine. Some of the Celtic tribes that they fought would fight naked. Uh, and modern historians uh, have speculated the reason for that is because it's a lot harder to get dirty cloth uh, like pushed into a wound where it becomes infected uh, if you fight naked. Others have speculated it had some kind of spiritual significance. Often these Celtic tribes would uh, pulverize local plants into colorful pastes and uh, paint their faces, or they would bleach their hair uh, to make it whiter and blonder. Or, or even spiky. Uh, why am I bringing this up? It's because these are the people that the Romans f were fighting when they invaded Britain. And there's a large number of examples throughout the history of Roman Britain where Roman garrisons on the frontier would be assaulted by, by troops like this and then they would melt into, you know, the foggy moors, uh, you know, only to be seen again maybe a month later or something like that. So... Especially uh, in areas like uh, Hadrian's Wall, which was the furthest extent of Roman Britain, like the province of Britannia, into the northern areas uh, where, you know, England starts to turn into Scotland. Beyond that, those people were never conquered by the Romans. I believe, one, because it was just too difficult. Um, and two, because maybe the Romans thought that they had already pacified uh, the richer kind of agricultural lands to the south. But uh, that's kind of the first example I wanted to give you is is these, you know, Celtic warriors with spears and stuff like that in foggy forests assaulting Roman soldiers. If we fast forward uh, a very long time, this may be a little more familiar for history buffs or American history buffs is I wanted to talk about Patriot uh, militias and the Continental Army fighting the British in the American War of Independence. So this is in the se second half of the 18th century, 
starting uh, 1775, lasting until 1781, 1783, things like that. This pops up all the time uh, in the popular kind of memory of the Revolutionary War, especially in the United States, is that you had these disciplined, uh, cold-blooded redcoats fighting in these big formations and firing on volleys. And you had these like plucky, determined American farmers sniping at them uh, from behind trees. And, you know, obviously this has been embellished over time, but there, there really were a lot of Americans uh, that fought the British in this way. One of the reasons is because the American um, colonies were not nearly as developed as mainland Europe in terms of uh, farmland and stuff like that. There were still uh, these heavily wooded areas. Over the centuries of contact between European settlers and the Native Americans, like the Native tribes that lived in the Northeast United States, often called the Woodland Tribes, this is where these Patriot militias learned how to fight like that. Um, throughout history, a lot of, you know, even firsthand sources, they, they call it Indian fighting, um, which is that term uh, would, you know, by the time of the American frontier in the late 19th century, uh, Indian fighting meant fighting the Indians. Um, whereas, I don't know, this is kind of personal speculation. I think that way back in the colonial times, Indian fighting had more of a meaning of fighting like the Indians. So, but uh, definitely that's that's something interesting to think about. So the um, Continental Army, a lot of people have looked back and said, well, it was so stupid for them to stand in lines and fight. Um, it's because a lot of the uh, high officers of the Continental Army still had European ideas and European training and kind of, but they also knew that they couldn't. They didn't believe that you could actually win the war strictly through guerrilla warfare. You did have to have one or two decisive victories against the British in the field. So that's definitely something interesting to think about. The next example I'd like to give is just to elaborate a little, little bit uh, on the Peninsular War that I mentioned earlier, where you had the Spanish and Portuguese um, fighting the French in Spain. The French tried time and time again to try to pacify the local population, and it just wasn't working. And it's also important to remember that in this peninsular war uh, in Spain and Portugal, the Spanish uh, and the Portuguese fighters, they were receiving things like black powder and weapons and stuff like that from the British. Like the British were actively involved in the peninsular war. Uh, but definitely, this is this is an interesting war to, to remember, if for no other reason, you know, you can kind of brag some trivia the next time you're at a party, say, oh, I know where the word gorilla comes from. So anyway, the next example, this is a huge one. Um, starting in the, in the mid-19th century, communism became a world force. And uh, by the time of the mid-20th century, it had taken hold pretty strongly in Cuba, which is, just, you know, just south of uh, Florida. And up until this point, there was a Cuban dictator called Fulgencio Batista, and he was in charge of the island, and there was a, a substantial portion of the population that just wasn't happy with him. So a guy comes along called Fidel Castro, and along with Che Guevara, they um, waged a guerrilla war against Batista, which eventually won. They just completely overpowered and demoralized the, the, uh, like the official soldiers of Batista. And this period, this overthrowing of Batista, 
this kind of rise of Fidel Castro to power uh, is called the Cuban Revolution, and it kind of reached its peak and became official in 1959. The reason why I picked the Cuban Revolution is because I feel that it's really like emblematic. It, it really captures. It's it's really just like a good example of a lot of these 20th century um, guerrilla warfare kind of socialist campaigns across the world. This process of maybe overthrowing a dictator who's maybe corrupt with the will of the people and uh, this like socialist rebellion striking from the hills or the woods. It, it, it's This happened everywhere in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia. And I just chose the Cuban Revolution as kind of a, a perfect... Um, you know, example of this to, to give you a little bit of flavor. The last one is much more recent. And I would say that an example of guerrilla warfare is you see, you saw Iraqi uh, insurgents operating against US troops uh, in the second Gulf War, uh, which is also called the second Iraq war. I think it's, it's so recent that historians still haven't really settled on what to call it. In this war, uh, which started during the Bush administration in 2003. It like initially the actual Iraqi army uh, under Saddam Hussein was crushed pretty quickly by U.S. forces, and that, and that's not surprising. I mean, if you have the largest military, uh, strongest military in the world come in, you know, of course they're they're going to stomp your little army. It's American forces ran into much more serious problems after the the quote official army was defeated when you had. Uh, the insurgency, people that could come out of the local population, uh, attack your soldiers or attack your equipment or, or steal things or whatever, and then melt back into the population before you could figure out uh, who they were. Because, you know, one of the, I, I'm not sure if a lot of people think, but one of the, the key things about warfare through modern history is um, the combatants wear uniforms. And that's kind of been agreed for centuries. And and that's one of the key things about guerrilla warfare is uh, often, not always, but uh, often the the guerrilla fighters don't wear uniforms. Uh, sometimes they they have throughout history, like they'll wear the uniforms of an army, you know, that no longer exists, or they'll they'll take patchwork pieces of uniform off uh, their enemies, or or like let's say they raid a supply depot, and so like it does happen. Um, but the Iraqi insurgents in the Iraq war operating against U.S. troops is very much an example of, um, from the American point of view, it was very hard to tell kind of who was an enemy combatant, uh, who was not, you know, who was a civilian, uh, who may be uh, like a terrorist where it's they're trying to achieve th things through uh, usage of terror for political goals rather than, you know, maybe strictly military goals. It. It's um, a lot of elements of counterinsurgency and like urban fighting in the 21st century have become very complicated. It's, it's very difficult. So in any case, um, I don't want to go too long on that particular subject. Um, I hope that uh, I've kind of illustrated what guerrilla warfare is uh, to some degree. Like, I hope you know more about it now than you did a few minutes ago. Um, I, I liked that I used the the example of Celtic resistance to Roman uh, occupation of Britain, you know, the, the Minutemen, the Patriot militias in the American War of Independence, 
the Peninsular War with Napoleon, Fidel Castro, Iraqi insurgents. Uh, but by no means are these, you know, this is not an exhaustive list of uh, guerrilla warfare, uh, you know, examples throughout history. There are tons and tons and tons and tons of these. Sometimes they're waged for strictly political goals or social goals. Uh, guerrilla warfare is, is also used for uh, religious objectives, uh, economic uh, objectives. Uh, guerrilla warfare is often used as well in um, like what's called na uh, national liberation movements. So when you have a country that may not even be occupied by a foreign power, uh, but desires to overthrow their own government that they consider tyrannical or anything like that. Um, sometimes it comes, sometimes their support in terms of money and weapons and training comes exclusively from foreign powers. Uh, we see this a lot in the 20th century with these Cold War, uh, what they call proxy wars all over the world where you would see, you know, maybe a democratic capitalist leader in a country uh, come into conflict with like a socialist communist leader and they're both receiving weapons and training from the outside like the Soviet Union and the United States they're not fighting each other directly they're fighting each other in some third world country where each superpower is supporting one side and that is often called by military historians when they talk about the Cold War they call it proxy wars so in any case sometimes there are no external powers influencing the outcome at all like it really does come entirely from the people from the bottom up uh, another thing about uh, guerrilla warfare is sometimes the powers that be will turn it back against them uh, there are lots of examples in history where the government or the king or whatever they'll realize that their ordinary army is losing or is outclassed by the guerrillas so they will start employing guerrilla or, or terror tactics to combat this insurgency. And the people that do this are often called paramilitaries because, you know, they're not full military, they're, they're paramilitaries. Uh, or they'll be called things like uh, counterinsurgents or counter-revolutionaries or, or loyalists or anything like that. So that, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because these are a lot of like the key words that you'll see. Uh, in a lot of academic historical sources or in history textbooks, things like that. Okay, well, that's all I have for now. Uh, I feel like we covered a lot in a very short period of time, though, and we kind of jumped all over history. Talked about Romans, Minutemen, uh, Spanish guerrillas. We talked about the Cuban Revolution. Uh, you know, even the the most recent Iraq War. So, I'd like hopefully uh, you know more about guerrilla warfare now than you did, you know, half an hour ago. Who knows? In any case, uh, I'd like to thank you all so much for listening. And this has been Bite Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I was Nick, your host.